So I know that some of you aren't parents. I'm going to start out by talking about parenting, but I promise I'll broaden it out in just a minute. But, you know, Olivia and I, as anyone who has kids who's a parent, uh, works, we re- really work hard at our parenting. Uh, we, like most of you, spend a lot of time. There's probably nothing that we talk about more. In fact, there's certainly nothing we talk about more together than our kids. Uh, what's going on with them? Where do they need to be? How do we get there? What forms do we need to fill out? Do they have enough money in their accounts? Who are their friends? I'm glad I have some of their friends up here and I get to know them here. Um, yeah, what's going on in their lives? How can we help them spiritually? How can we help them with their homework? How can we help them with all kinds of things? Uh, we love our kids, and, and usually, as a parent, when I look at my kids and how they're doing, I feel pretty good about how they're doing. Uh, sometimes, when I'm looking at how they're doing, like any of you as parents, I, I don't feel as good. There's this tendency we have as parents to idolize our children, um, to make them, and now they are important, absolutely, but to make them ultimately important, uh, to, in a way, serve them, in a weird way, to serve them so that we're kind of serving ourselves, uh, so that as they are doing well, we feel really good about ourselves. Uh, as they are not doing well, we don't feel maybe as good about it. So in 2018, I was feeling pretty good about my parenting overall, Um, and, you know, kind of one of those moments where you're like, I feel like things are kind of going well right now. Well, you know, Josh at that time is playing at a Chick-fil-A play place, and, uh, you know, it's supposedly safe for children, but he decided to climb on the, the, the cage on the outside of the slide instead of actually going down the slide. He fell, broke his thumb, we took him in to urgent care. He got a cast and a sling and all that stuff. So, you know, kind of this moment where not that big of a deal, you know, a little bit of a ding on the parenting card. Well, then, like 12 days later, he decides he wants to go ripsticking, which is like, if you don't know, ripstick is like a skateboard that you twist with your own body to make it go. And he's ripsticking with a cast, arm in a sling, and he falls. Now, when you fall and you have one arm to cast and you fall on that side where well, you can't catch yourself, so he falls, and somehow he hurts his other elbow. And so we get a call from, the, from another parent. Again, we're not there. Uh, and they call and say, hey, you're going to need to come and pick up Josh. This looks really bad. And we get there, and indeed, it did look really bad. In fact, he fell on some fresh asphalt, and it looked like his arm looked like ground-up hamburger meat. I'm not even kidding. Like you, it's one of those as a parent where you're like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? Is it bruised? Is it broken? Is it shattered? Hard to tell because there's so much asphalt in his elbow. So we take him to urgent care in this amazing, any of you who are physicians out there, thank you for what you do. This amazing physician at urgent care, normally, sometimes it's not as good of an experience, but we found, we had this lady who happened to be there that day on a Saturday who literally took two hours with us to clean out Josh's elbow wound, picking out all of the pieces of asphalt gently cleaning out the wound, and then we took x-rays, and then we learned that it wasn't broken, but it could, his skin could be pretty much stapled back together. So one of those moments, you know, you're like, okay, feeling not as good. You know, one of the highest values in parenting is protecting your kids, not feeling very good right now about parenting. And then less than 24 hours after that, 
To take the cake, Jordan falls and has a traumatic brain injury uh, in 2018. He ended up having a, a brain bleed. So we find ourselves in the PICU at, at Wake uh, Raleigh and wondering um, what is happening, what is going on. You know, in every area of life, it could be parenting, it could be something else. Um, what we want to have so badly, what we believe is that we can have peace we can have tranquility, we can have contentment in life when we get everything under control, when everything's going well. When not just some things or most things are going well, but when we get it all under control, then we can have peace. But the re- reality is that that never actually happens. You never actually get there. You never actually get to that point where everything is going perfectly well. And if you idolize your children, if you put your children in the center of your life, then you know, some days you'll be up and some days you'll be down. Uh, another area of life that you may, if it's not parenting, another idol that we can have would be potentially our career. You know, we're cruising and everything is going well. We feel pretty good about things and then all of a sudden we get a new boss or our company is downsized and we have something where we feel like our career is going in the right direction. We feel like we've almost made it and then it's taken away from us. Something as simple as clothing, you're obsessed with you know, having the right vibe. Maybe that means having the right handbag, the right shoes. And, and you feel like you've just about got it all together and then somebody in Paris or someone on TikTok says that your shoes aren't cool anymore and you, you realize you don't have it. How about financial security? You feel great about how things are going. You've made a good investment like we did in Florida in the housing market in 2005. You feel great about this house that you just bought and then the economy implodes. Then the stock market crashes and you don't feel as good anymore. How about your physical appearance or well-being? Well, if you haven't noticed, we're all getting older. We all are. And, and what you used to think of yourself in like peak physical condition and then you realize that you go and you get a test and maybe you're not in peak physical condition. You thought that you were doing well, but you're not anymore. And this is just life. But for us in Cary, we don't just want one of these areas to be going well. We just don't want to be good parents. We don't just want to be good in our careers. We just don't want to be financially secure and well-dressed and healthy. We want all of that. I mean, that's why most people moved here, is out of this relentless pursuit of having it all together, that we would reach a point where we would have all of those things going on in our lives. And we believed in moving here or moving to the triangle that we could find tranquility and peace in life in this beautiful suburb to live in by having an alignment of all of those areas of life, everything coming together, but it's chasing after the wind. Now here in in this text, Solomon tells us that, you know, the hardest thing in life is to learn how to be content with one handful of life, having one handful of God's blessings and holding on to that one hand and finding contentment because everything in our culture and everything in our flesh or our ego tells us that the only way to find contentment is not in having one handful, but in having two hands full. We're, we're searching, we have one handful, most of us have at least one handful of life, we have some blessings, God's been good, But we're so busy chasing after whatever's next with the second hand. And Solomon tells you that as soon as you get there and as soon as you believe that you're going to have two handfuls of life, it's actually 
a phantom. It's actually a mist. It's a vapor. That second hand never gets full. You can never fill your second hand full of life. And that's the way that God designed us to live our lives. So today we're going to talk about how to find contentment with a one handful mentality. How can you learn to be content in life with just having one handful of God's blessings? How can that be enough for you so that you don't spend your whole life with your second hand chasing after the wind? The first point today is one handful of contentment. So the passage in Ecclesiastes shows us three different ways that our hearts can be oriented around our possessions. The first person here who we find in verse 5 has zero handfuls of God's blessing. It says, they fold their hands and eat their own flesh. So poverty can be caused by many things. It can be caused by injustice, disability, all kinds of factors. But here Solomon is talking about a particular reason why some people have not enough or zero handfuls, and it's a lack of work ethic. It's laziness. They don't work. They don't work. And so they don't have enough. And everyone needs to have one handful. So having zero handfuls is not enough. It's not It's not what God intended. God did not intend for anyone in this world to have zero handfuls of blessing. So we need to think about those who don't have anything in one hand, what would we do? How are are we, if we are so busy with that other hand, chasing after the next thing, how are we going to have enough time and enough energy to use that hand to help other people? What does that look like? Instead of using that second hand to go after more What if we use it to go after something else, helping other people? So then Solomon begins to describe this this person in verse 6 who's the person that we want to be like. He describes the person as simply having one handful of tranquility. Now, tranquility can mean peace or contentment. This person has one handful of God's blessing, one handful, and they've learned to be content with that being enough for them. What do you need to be holding on to in order to have peace and contentment with one handful of life? The better question is not what, but who. Who do you need at the center of your life in order to be content with one handful of life? You need to have Jesus Christ at the center of your life. If you plug anything else into your life, You plug in your kids, you plug in your career, financial security, your clothes, your health, anything else, name it, then you will constantly be chasing after the second thing because it feels like it's not enough because it's not enough. But if you have Jesus Christ at the center of your life and you are frequently remembering his death for you on a cross for your sins, you are frequently remembering that he has been raised for you to newness of life. Simply put, you are are remembering the gospel of grace in your life that all the guilt, all the shame has been removed, that you will spend forever with him, then you can have a one handful mentality. You need to be holding on to the theology found in Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These are beautiful words. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way 
that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So it's knowing Christ personally in this way that can help us to live with contentment or tranquility in the midst of the every, ever elusive search for gain that is going on in this world around us. Now, if you know Jesus Christ personally, meaning you have put your faith in him, that is so important. But there's a difference between believing in Christ for salvation and in making Jesus Christ your functional trust. What I mean is that you can believe the gospel and really truly believe it, but actually live your life as a Christian not functionally trusting in the gospel, not functionally trusting that what it says in in Heidelberg Catechism, question one, is true for you, that Jesus Christ does love you, not just in the sense that he's forgiven your sins, but he actually promises to provide for your every need, that he actually sees you and knows you and cares for you, no matter what is going on in your life. There's a difference between believing in Jesus for your salvation and in functionally trusting in Jesus at the center of your life to be enough for you. That's what we need to live with a one handful mentality. So here's the deal. This is actually really comforting. God knows that we need, we really do need some things in life. Absolutely. We have material needs, food, water, shelter, clothing. Jesus gets all that. On top of that, on top of these necessary things, he has blessed you. He has blessed many of us with with things like spouses, children, healthy bodies, safety, sleep, vacations, educations, jobs that we sometimes like and we sometimes don't. He has given us a lot. In fact, he probably has given us something like more, more than one handful. Maybe it's like one and a half handfuls. It's a lot. It's a whole lot to like hold in that hand, that one hand. But he's given us a lot. And he knows that, he knows that we need much of that. And on top of our needs, he's given us many of our wants. But in order to live differently and to not live with that second hand chasing after the wind, we have to realize that Jesus is enough. Not all of that other stuff, that it's Jesus who is enough. And as we recognize that Jesus is enough, we can then live rightly related to those things in the one handful. Rather than idolizing them and thinking like, if I lose one of these things, what will happen to me? Well, we can learn to value those things rightly because of Christ. But you can't really adequately talk about peace and contentment without talking about its corollary, which Solomon calls comparison. Comparison. Look with me again at verse 6. There's a third kind of person here. It's this person who is reaching out to grab more and more. And where does that come from? Where does that come from? He says in verse 4, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So what is making it so hard for us to resist that temptation, to go after that second handful of blessing, believing so badly that we need it? It's our comparison to our neighbors. Who can we compare ourselves to? Well, we can compare ourselves to almost anyone. We can compare ourselves to people at church, to people on TV, 
people in your neighborhood, colleagues at work, or our friends on social media. I think social media is a big problem, so I'll talk about that for just a minute. So back in 2012, which was like 100 years ago in the digital age, uh, one of the first articles written about the uh, negative impacts uh, of social media causing a rise in depression came out in 2012 in The Atlantic. It's one of the first articles on the topic, and they were talking about Facebook, okay? So they were saying that, man, extensive amount of times on Facebook can really do bad things for your mental health. I remember talking to other people, and we were all kind of like, really? Huh. That's interesting. Never really thought about that before. Um, and then, you know, in 2017, 18, I mean, some of us are still on Facebook. Most people are, have moved on to other platforms. So Slate in 2017, 18 writes an article about selfie loathing and how on Instagram, because of oh, the search for the perfect picture and, I mean, good night. I mean, the, the desire to look a certain way on Instagram, I mean, it really does cause anxiety and it causes depression that they handled out. It tempts us to want to go after that second handful. And whatever was true in 2018 about the impact of social media on mental health is like three to five times more true now uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic when we were all isolated and looking at our phones for like a year and a half or two years, even to go to church sometimes. It's just gotten worse. I mean, the Surgeon General just came out with a warning against TikTok and it's the, the detrimental impact it can have on your mental health. And my kids don't like me talking about this with them because they love socials. And, and I think there's some good things about social media. But what's the problem with social media is that it, it has this, um, this disingenuous ability to, to make us compare ourselves to others, not in who they really are, but the best version of themselves in a moment in time out of like 100 pictures. And then we're not content with what God has given us. So you would think that a certain level of income could guarantee our contentment, but that's not the case. People with great wealth can struggle with destructive comparison. My father uh, worked at a company for over 40 years. Uh, this company started three other companies. He was pretty high up in, in those companies for a long time, and he knew the owner of these companies. This, the owner of the company grew up in poverty in L.A., which in Alabama means lower Alabama. Uh, so he grew up in like a one-bedroom, honestly, like a shotgun house. Um, and uh, it was just this really awful upbringing. And he, you know, is the American dream. He's a smart man, you know, made some good investments and started a company. He ended up, at the end of his life, being worth $40 million. And my father once asked him, because this man was also known to be very unhappy. I mean, just very difficult person to work for. My dad asked him one day, got to know him well enough to ask him, uh, what will make you happy in life? And he said, literally, he said, I think just one penny more would make me happy. Really? Wow, $40 million. $40 million apparently can't make you happy. Comparison can happen regardless of your age. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. I've heard before that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison can happen whether you're male or female. You may think that this sin is mainly a female sin or mainly a male sin, but it's not. Comparison is an attack on everyone who has a soul. It's, it's the, the heartbeat of the 10th commandment. We all struggle with envy. A study was done years ago which blew my mind. This study revealed that the average American family 
would rather make less money than they do right now as long as it meant making more than their neighbors. For real. So the average American family, let's put this together. If you make 80K right now, instead of making 100K, you'd rather make 70K if your neighbors made 50K. Because you would feel better about yourself. You just actually want, I don't know how they quantified this, but basically they're saying you just want to look better and be a little bit better off than the people next to you. Comparison can also happen inside the church. I'm sure that's not a shocker for you, but I know people personally in multiple situations between this church and other churches I've been in who are struggling with coveting what others have while I am also counseling someone and that person who's struggling with coveting what others have is the object of coveting for another person I'm counseling. So I'm counseling this person about coveting and another person is coveting them because how good their life is. I mean, it is ubiquitous. It, it affects everyone. It affects everyone, Christians, non-Christians, everywhere in our society. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, if you think that your role in extending God's kingdom has nothing to do with your wealth and possessions, then you're just burying your head in the sand. Listen, if you own a home in America, I know not of us all, you know, own homes, but a lot of us do. If you do own a home in America, then you are in the top 92% of the world's most wealthy people. I know it certainly doesn't seem that way. Why does it not seem that way? It's because when you compare yourself to other people, you don't think about uh, Azerbaijan or the Philippines or a rural area of North Carolina. You think about neighbor one who just got a new Tesla and neighbor two who just traveled to Europe for four weeks with their family. We don't select people to compare ourselves to who we're doing better than. We select the people that we, we envy them. We wish our lives were like them. But if you don't think that your, your uh, calling to extend the kingdom of God on earth has anything to do with your wealth and possessions, you're sorely mistaken. You're burying your head in the sand. In fact, for the American church, it may be our wealth that is our greatest opportunity to extend God's kingdom on earth. We have so much of the world's wealth in America. We have so much of the world's wealth in the church in general. And if we don't think that our relationship to our money and our possessions matters to God, you're mistaken. God is deeply interested in you learning to live with one hand full, one, because he loves you and he wants you to learn how to be content because he loves you. But he's also concerned about you learning to live with one hand full so that you can go on with that other hand and get busy about the business of extending his kingdom on earth with the other hand. I've got to believe that God gets tired of seeing people who have one and a half hands full spending all of their life and all of their prayers and all of their anxiety on getting the other handful. I've got to believe that God desperately wants and deeply wants to do a work in our souls and in our, our spirit that we would then be content so that then we can extend that hand or raise it up in worship for his glory. So we need to learn to live with one handful. And if we can learn to live with a one handful mentality, the second point this morning is we need to learn with the other hand reaching out. One handful, one hand reaching out. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, which is read for us, 
we find a man, Paul, who has learned the secret of contentment. He tells us that in Philippians 4. He's learned how to be content in all circumstances. And so what is a man who has learned how to be content? How does he live? How does he live his life? Well, he's now running a new race, and his race is not to keep up with his neighbors. It's a, it's a different race. It's a different sport. He's interested in a different goal. He's interested in the kingdom of God on earth. He's, he's changed from living with a scarcity mentality, believing he doesn't have enough, to living with a sacrificial mentality, believing that he has so much that he wants to give whatever he can for the sake of the gospel. So remember, Paul has one handful of God's blessings. So what is he doing with the other hand? Well, he's learning how to use it to reach out and to love his neighbors. Very specifically, what is his goal in loving and serving others? In the end of verse 19, he says his goal is to win more of them. To win more of them. Now, you may feel like, man, that's a little bit narrow, to win them. So let's see if he broadens out his focus. Well, in verse 20, he says, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. His focus is on winning the Jews. The end of verse 20, he says, I placed myself under the law, though I am free from the law, that I may win those under the law. He says, my focus is still on winning them. To those outside the law, I became like those outside the law, that I may win those outside the law. So he's laser focused on winning people to Christ. He says in verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then at the end in verse 23 in his finale of that section, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So Paul's focus with his other hand is on winning them and on saving them. Now, now sharing the gospel with your neighbor, I want you to know it is the most loving thing that you can do for your neighbor. There are other ways that you can love your neighbor, absolutely, and we should be about all of those things. You should bake for them, you should pray for them, you should hang out with them, you should invite them to your parties, but you should also share the gospel with them because sharing the gospel with them is the most loving thing that you can do for them. Why? Let's go back to the whole premise of this section. It's because everything in that one and a half handful that you've been given by God, except for Jesus Christ, will not be able to be taken with you. You are going to lay it all down. You can pack it all around your coffin if you want to, but it's going to biodegrade with you. You can't, take it any, you can't take anything to heaven except for Jesus Christ. And so sharing the gospel with your neighbors, and many of you, some of you in particular, I know about are zealous for this. I pray that more of us will be. We need to be sharing the gospel, winning people over by all means possible. But there is a sacrifice involved here. One night at youth group, I asked the high school students the question, what is keeping you from following Christ wholeheartedly? And one student gave a really honest answer. And they said, I want to share Christ with my friends, but I also don't want to lose my swag while I'm doing it. I'm like, hey, I feel you. You know what I want? I want to share Christ with somebody. And they're like, man, you are, you are so intelligent. Um, 
And I, I respect you even more for, for telling me that. In fact, thank you. You're so caring. And, and I really I want to be your friend. Let's hang out more. I have so many questions. And you know what? My respect for you has actually grown so much by you telling me that I need to change my life and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. You know what? That doesn't usually happen. Very rarely can you share the gospel with your neighbor and your swag increases. You know why? Because you're talking about Jesus who was crucified on a cross. So what you're trying to do is by presenting a message where at the end, this kind of the, the whole force of the argument is that God sent his son and he died on a cross for you. He was nailed to a cross. And so you need to follow him and give up your life and follow him. That message is actually incongruent with you keeping your swag. Okay? Because in order to follow Christ, you need to lay the swag aside. There's no swag at the cross. Jesus was crucified there. And so for us, yes, it's a, it's a sacrifice. Or perhaps it's not, though, because Paul says at the end, in verse 24, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Because actually the message you're sharing is so much more important to you than your swag. Like you keeping your reputation in the eyes of other people you know what you're going to learn? You're going to learn how great Jesus is and how much he loves you even more as you use that other hand instead of trying to gain more, instead to extend the gospel, to win your friends and neighbors over for Christ. So you can use that other open hand, that free hand, instead of chasing after the win, you can use it to win others over to Christ by his grace. You can also use that other hand for the third and final point, so you can have, with one hand mentality, you can have one hand reaching out. You can also have one hand reaching up. One hand reaching up in worship. You know, it'll free you up instead of being so concerned all the time. Instead of ending every prayer with, God bless me. Maybe you can start ending your prayers with, God, you are the blessed one and you are so great. Maybe you'll be a little more free, freed up in your soul to just worship God. Regardless of how he answers your prayers, you have found the one who loves you and who has gave himself up for you. And verse 24, Paul says he's running to receive the prize. What is the prize for Paul? Well, he doesn't tell us directly here, but he does in Philippians 3, 14. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenward call in Christ Jesus. What is the prize for Paul? The prize for Paul is the heavenward call. It's standing before Jesus, having run in that other race, that race that other people in this world don't understand. Everyone else is running the race for more, better career, more financial security, more educated children, more education for themselves, more swag. And Paul says, I have jettisoned that entire race and I have run a different race and I can't wait to stand before the one who will give me the, the wreath, the crown of glory on that day because I have completed the race of the kingdom of God and I have done it faithfully and I've done it well and I can't wait to stand before him. And until then, he wants to raise that hand, that hand of worship 
and worship God along the way until he sees him face to face. You know, the night of Jordan's brain injury, before I knew that he was going to be okay, I was really struggling, obviously. And a close friend of mine texted me this quote from Bono of you two. Bono says, what no man can own, no man can take. Now, that's a tough one when you're talking about your children. It's a tough one when you're talking about your career. It's a tough one when you're talking about your health. It's not easy. But the reality is that when we struggle to trust God with our possessions, it's a sign that we have come to believe that we actually own them and that we were meant to own them forever. And when we have these reminders in life, when, when you're chasing after something and you think you're almost there and you reach out and it's a mist, it's an opportunity for you to realize that that's the wrong race. That's the wrong race. You can't own everything. You can't get two hands full. You, you don't own, in fact, anything. Everything you have, everything is a gift. It's all a gift from God. And the sooner we can learn that we are actually stewards of all of those gifts rather than owners of those gifts, we can then be freed up so that when things happen that we really don't want to happen, instead of it completely rocking us, and, it, and to be emotionally healthy, it does rock you a little bit, for sure. But for it not to permanently totally rock you, you need to have Christ at the center. You need to understand that God loves you. God is providing for you and that you can indeed trust him. And what no man can own, no man can take. If our children, if our careers, if our health, if it's in God's hands anyway, then no one can take that from God. Nothing happens to us outside of the realm of his care and his concern and his sovereignty for us. May we learn what Solomon and Paul had learned about the secret of living with a one handful mentality. One handful so that you can have an empty hand. And with that empty hand, you can do much good. You can work to win others over for the gospel. You can raise that hand in worship. You can do all kinds of things that God might call you to for the sake of his glory and his kingdom. If we can learn to have contentment in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then use that other hand to reach out and to worship. Let's pray. Lord, I know this church, and I know that we really want to learn this. And we are learning this, even now, Lord. We are in process. We're on the journey. We are running that other race a lot of the time. That, that race of the kingdom of God, the one that you've called us on, but sometimes we find ourselves drawn back in to the race of this world, the race of trying to fill both hands. Father, would you give us insight from your Holy Spirit when we're doing that? Would you teach us to live our lives content, tranquil, at peace, not because we think that we've got everything together, because we know that we don't. 
And yet we have been loved tremendously in the gospel of grace. Father, would we raise that other hand up in worship and would we extend it out with generosity, with the gospel, so that many would know you, the only one who can make us truly happy in this life. We thank you in Jesus' name.